was about to say, everybody, please take a seat, and you all just magically did it naturally. Um, good morning, everybody. This is our last week in the sermon series we've been walking through, the title of which is When We Were Kings. And if you remember, we, we began this the other side of, of an election that seems to be still going on um, in some way or other, and, and we are preaching it alongside uh, our Grace sister church who are actually in Washington, D.C., Grace Capital City, and they, they're an interesting congregation because they, they have people from uh, the, the current political parties who are serving in, in both sides of government um, attending and worshiping with them in their congregation. Um, and and the reason that we really started this was, was because I think it was helpful for us to understand that the things that are going on in our current day, the posturing for, for power, the, 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 the priority given to, to the power that empires seek after, isn't something that's new. It's something that's been around for, for many years. Um, and so, so this morning is something of a review of each week. Uh, and if I was to summarize um, what the whole series feels like to me, um, it, it's, it's, that, it's that in the context of a corrupt world, a corrupt world that has gone after empire power, that has prioritized the things that, that sustain and establish empires, there arises a man whose name is Elijah, and Elijah shows us how to walk by faith in that kind of context. Uh, and so if we were to journey back, we'd have to go all the way back and, and turn with me, if you would, in your, in your Bibles, if you have physical Bibles or on, on, on your phones, if you have phones, to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, because Ben reminded us of this, because sometimes we think that Israel was out of line asking for a king, but that's not the case, because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, God says to the Israelites, and so this is long before they come to the land. He says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwelling it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are, that, that are around me. So God is, is telling them that they're going to look at those other nations and they're going to notice that they have a king and they're going to ask for a king like those nations. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And so that's an important thing to recognize that if you, when you see those nations and when you see that they have a king and you want a king, um, then make sure it's someone that God chooses. One from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then God says, these are all the things that that king shouldn't do. He shouldn't multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. Um, uh, verse 17, he shall have too many wives, lest his heart turn away. And it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, verse 18, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book, one from the one before the priest, the Levites. And that book of the law, verse 19, shall be with him. And he's meant to read it every day and that he can learn to fear the Lord and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom and he and his children in the midst of Israel. And so God gives them this pattern for kingship. And it's a pattern that says that the king, so his heart doesn't become raised and lofty and proud is meant to keep the law of God before him day and night. So that's telling us that leaders are meant to walk that way. Leaders, in order that they stay humble, are meant to have God before them at all times because when you walk in the presence of God, how on earth can you ever be humble without God? 
without God before you all the time, day, night, meditating on his scripture, meditating on his precepts, day and night. How else can there ever be humility? And so, and so that's not only the pattern for the king, it's the pattern for all of us. And, and, but these aren't things that the people of Israel actually do um, because, because Solomon, you'll see later, does take uh, horses for himself. And he does have, it seems, the scripture tells us, about a thousand wives in some way or other, uh, which is too many, right? It's excessive. And so, and so, and so, and so the, the, the pattern was there, but Israel doesn't follow it. Um, but they go, so, so, so when they begin to ask for a king and they're demanding, give us a king like all the other nations, the first king that they have is, is Saul. And because, because they look at Saul and Saul stands head and shoulders above anybody else and he's, he's a good looking man. And so from the outside, he's the, he's the right choice and he would have looked good on the presidential stage because he would have been taller than everybody else and he would have had his, his dark blue suit on and his white shirt and his nice tie and everybody would have picked him because he looked good. And they do pick Saul because he looks good. Um, but Saul has issues. And in the context of Saul's power and Saul's reign, God says, oh, hold on a sec, I need someone else. And so he sends Samuel the prophet to the home of Jesse. And Jesse, thinking the same way, parades all of his sons before Samuel the prophet, and he forgets one. Just imagine that. He forgets the one that God wants to choose because in Jesse's eyes, in the eyes of his own father, King David isn't enough. King David isn't significant enough. He doesn't on the outside look like someone who you would want to be king. But thank God that God looks on the inside and God sees the heart instead of the exterior. And so when God sends David in eventually and they've got to the point of realizing that it's none of the ones that have been paraded, God chooses a man who's after his own heart and sets him on the throne of Israel. And David later in his life desires to build a house for God. But God says, no, you're not going to be the one that's going to build the house. Instead, it will be your, your son Solomon who will build a house. So David, having made preparations, dies and passes the kingdom to Solomon. And it's about that time that we begin to see the development of this, this tension between kingdom power, which is the way that God would have his kings rule and reign and govern, and worldly power, the power that, that establishes and transitions and sustains for a time empires. And this posturing and this, this, this odd behavior is behavior that the world has and the world follows. And so the people of Israel are following the, the patterns of the kingdoms around them. They're learning from those kingdoms that to succeed, it's okay to cheat and to scheme and to manipulate and to lie and to deceive and to, and to put others down so that you can get ahead. Pretty much it's okay to do anything to acquire power to pass power, to retain power. And they become eventually like all the nations that surround them. Why? Because of their proximity to those nations. They're living amidst them. It's not easy to not be in the world. It's impossible for us as Christians to not be in the world. We are living, walking, breathing day in, day out with folks who aren't godly. But just like Israel, if we begin to observe their ways and we hang with them too much and then we, we, we follow their counsel and we begin to act like them, we in turn end up going down the same path that Israel goes down where we begin to mimic those nations. And the worst thing that Israel does in mimicking those nations is it begins to practice the same idolatry. Israel begins to worship the same gods that the other nations worship. And the kings after Solomon 
It's just a, a downward slope. And if you turn in your Bibles um, to, to 1 Kings 16, um, verse 33, 1 Kings 16, verse, verse um, 33, you'll read about the king who is the king in whose reign Elijah comes on the scene. And this king's name is Ahab. In 1 Kings 16, verse 33, it says, Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord of God to, of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so, and so the reason I skipped to Ahab is because whatever happened between Solomon and here, it wasn't as bad as it was at this point. And if you flip further forward, you'll see right at the end of Ahab's life in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 25. 1 Kings 22, um, chapter 22, verse 25. It says, there at the end of his life, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably. Did I say that right? Abominably. The more I say it, it's going to get worse. Let me stop. Uh, in, anybody, say abominably for me, please. That'll be it. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. Uh, Thank you. Uh, he behaved like that in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the children had cast out, the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So Ahab's rule is probably up to this point the low point in the life of Israel. And we see into this, into this low point in the life of Israel, this man emerges and his name is Elijah. And, and at the top of chapter 17, if you just flip back a little bit, it says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab. And so Elijah's this weird man who comes out of it would seem nowhere. You, you can't find him before this point. It's a bit like in the book of, I think Genesis it is, that, that there's, a, there's a priest called Melchizedek who just, just, just appears. And Melchizedek is so amazing that he makes it into the book of Hebrews when they're describing one that has neither beginning nor end. And, I, uh, uh, and, and Elijah just comes out of nowhere. And the amazing thing is it's the low point in Israel's life. God sends this man on the scene, and we don't know who his parents are. We don't know where he grew up or where he went to church. We don't know anything about him other than that he shows up, and the very first thing is he walks into the palace of the king, and he says, there's not going to be any rain. Why? Because I say so. And Elijah continues to do these remarkable deeds. He speaks truth to power right into the palace of the king, and he tells him, I say it's not going to rain. And it's exactly as Elijah says. And then God says to Elijah, go and dwell by the brook Cherith. And so he follows the word of the Lord. And when he dwells by the brook, God says, I've commanded ravens to feed. And so Elijah's journey involves eating food that comes to him in the mouth of birds. It's these craggy bits of meat and bread that the bird is bringing to him. Elijah is living off this. And then when the brook runs out, eventually God says, go and dwell with a widow. And he sends him not to a widow who has a palace, but to a widow who's on the way out to eat her last meal to die. And Elijah has the confidence, because I'm not sure I would, if I meet a woman who I'm going to ask for food, and she's like, this is my last food, I'm like, look, you're worse off than me, take care of yourself. And he doesn't say that. He says, no, 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 you're the one who God's commanded to feed me. And so he goes and dwells in this woman's house. And the food doesn't run out for as long as he's there. Isn't that amazing? God's provision. But then it gets, it gets worse, it would seem, in the woman's house because the son dies. And, 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 but Elijah, in the house of this woman, prays for God to, to restore the life of the widow's son, and God does this. 
And then he leaves the widow's house because God said it's time for you to deal with these prophets of Baal, these prophets who, are, who, who aren't godly, these prophets who the other nations are walking in, that Israel's observing the same things. And he calls this showdown on Mount Carmel where, where he, 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 mim- he mocks them and he tells them to, to prepare their altar. And then he prepares his altar and God doesn't answer their, their cries and God doesn't answer them when they cut themselves and do all the weird things they do. But God instead answers when Elijah prays and says, God, let it be known that these things I've done today are in your name, are at your word. And the fire falls from heaven. And the fire lights up an altar that has been soaked in water that Ben reminds us, reminded us was a, was a scarce commodity. In a land where there's drought, he's wasting water on an altar. And every one of these things is telling us something about God and a walk of faith with God and what it's like. But Elijah's life isn't over because he runs. And and whether he was running because he was exhausted or because of Jezebel's intimidation, because she threatens to to do to him as he had done to all the other prophets, the false prophets, and he finds himself on on Mount Horeb. And that's where he hears God in, in stillness. And he comes down from Mount Horeb and he anoints his successor, Elisha. And Elisha is a man who's so doggedly determined to, to get whatever it is that Elijah has, that, that you'll follow into 2 Kings chapter 1 and 2, where, where Elisha just won't stop following him. And he wants a double portion. He wants twice as much. Whatever Elijah has, he's confident enough to say, God, whatever Elijah has, I want twice that. But in order for him to get this, he's got to see this incredible moment when the chariot of fire comes from heaven and, and whisks Elijah up into heaven. So his beginning, the beginning of his life is unusual. We don't know what it was. The end of his life is even more unusual because a chariot of fire comes and and whisks him up. And I can't prove to you that this doesn't happen to every one of us. That at the moment that we die, that a chariot of fire comes and whisks us up. All we know is this time, Elisha sees it. He sees spiritually. And so much of Elisha's life, if you were to track forward, is, is a man who lived in a world and was seeing spiritually amidst the world. There's a point when the, 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 the Elisha and those he is with are surrounded by enemies and, and his servant Gehazi doesn't get the idea that it's all good for the people of God. And Elisha prays, God open his eyes. And when his eyes are open, he sees surrounding them these, these chariots of fire, these angels around them. And it's like, oh, hold on a second. It looks a whole lot better in the spirit world than it does in the natural world. And this isn't amazing because, because this, these examples are there for our, for our instruction. And we so love Elijah or Grace Marietta that three of our values, three out of five, are taken from his life. Our value soak the altar is taken from the experience on, on Mount Carmel with the, with the prophets of Baal. It's about living obediently to and in radical dependence on a holy God. Another one of our values, pass the cloak is believing in those who are next, entrusting ownership to them. Just like Elijah did, throwing his cloak around the shoulders of Elisha. And when Elijah eventually get, Elisha gets the idea that something significant has happened, he follows him and follows him and follows him. And Elijah can't get rid of him. And he sees this, this amazing moment when, when, when the chariot comes and takes him up to heaven. And the third value is, is that the, of the five is hear the whisper. Hear the whisper, which is taken from the moment on Mount Horeb, where we are talking about us as a congregation actively co-discerning 
together the voice of God. Now, I can't wrap this sermon series up without moving to the New Testament. I'm, I'm one of my disciplines. If I find myself in the Old Testament too much, I have to get to the New Testament. Because I've I got to hear what the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament and Jesus said about the things that I'm reading because I've got to believe that their sense of revelation is so much greater than mine. And so sometimes I find I, I, I have to land in the New Testament because I want to know what Paul said about Elijah or if he said anything or Peter or James or Jesus. And when you move to the New Testament, you, you see that Elijah does show up. And, and one of the things that Jesus says of him, he likens John the Baptist to him. And so there's something about John the Baptist and something about Elijah that is similar, and whether it's because they were crazy men that lived in the wilderness and wore, 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 wore camel skin and were hairy and all of that sort of thing, and, and, and maybe that is exactly what it was, or maybe there's something about the power they walked in or something about the spirit that they moved in. But Jesus likens Elijah to John the Baptist. And there's a second instance in the New Testament when Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, John, James, up on the up on the mountain of transfiguration, and who are the two people he meets up there? Moses and Elijah. Isn't that amazing? The law and the prophets. And Jesus says in the end, the voice from the clouds booms, his father says, more than the law, more than the prophets, listen to him, this is my son. So bigger than both of those two things, those big pillars in the, in the life of Israel. But this, here's something else I want to ask you. How often did Jesus meet Moses and Elijah on the mountain? Did he do it every day? How do you know it was one? That's a guess. How do you know that every time Jesus didn't go to pray that he was transfigured? And today was the only day when his disciples saw it and he let them into this. How do you know that Moses and Elijah weren't speaking to Jesus the whole time? And that Jesus had something to learn from Elijah. In the same way as we're here learning something from Elijah, that maybe Elijah's telling you, you want to understand what faith is. Faith is going to the weird place. Faith is getting provision from the beak of ravens. So you think the Spirit's led you into the wilderness, then maybe he did lead you into the wilderness. Do you think that, that, that sometimes you're going to go on a journey of faith and it's going to turn exactly opposite to the way that you think it was going to turn, just like it did for me in the widow's house? But God was still there. Do you think there's anything that Jesus is learning from the fellowship with, with Elijah that we can learn from? And that's why I think Jesus is communing with him, as well as the symbolism of the law and the prophets in that one place, and Jesus' superiority, the fact that Jesus is better than both of those things. Um, but there are seasons of faith from Elijah's life that we can learn from. The seasons where, like Elijah on Mount Horeb, we're just tired. And all we can do is just sit down and wait for God to send us angel food. And wait for God to replenish us and wait for God to pick us up and to whisper to us and to listen for his voice. But you see there that even before he calls for the rain, Elijah hears the sound of rain. And so you see that somehow he is so in tune with things of the kingdom that he's able to walk out this way amidst this terribly corrupt world that's been symbolized by the, the depths that Ahab has led them into. And so in another New Testament reference, and I'd like you to turn there, is to the end of the book of James. James, 
chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Let me read this. I'm going to read, I'm reading all the way back from verse 13 because I just want to put this in context. James chapter 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And this is interesting because here's where James drops Elijah, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We can pray like Elijah prayed for all of these situations here. If someone is suffering, verse 13, we can pray. If someone is sick, we can pray. If someone wanders from the faith, we can pray, we can turn them back. Just as Elijah did, we too are ministers of the kingdom. But the verse I want you to focus on here is this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Like ours. He wasn't some superhuman. A nature like ours. Some scriptures translate it in this way that he, he was subject to the same passions as us, the same struggles as us, the same weaknesses as us. He suffered like we do. He was like us in every way, which tells us that if it wasn't easy, if it isn't easy for us, it wasn't easy for him either. If it's difficult for us to walk as Christians, then it was difficult for Elijah to walk as Christians. Not easy, but possible. And just pause and think about that for a moment because, because God's not putting this man in the Bible so that we can look up to him and, and think, oh, I can never be like that. The reason that James brings it home and says, oh, hold on a second, if there are sick among you, if there are people suffering, if there are people struggling with, with habitual sin, if there are people who've, whose habitual sin has led them away from the path, get in there and pray. Pray for them. Pray for them because if your prayer is, is fervent, if your prayer is effective, if your prayer is like the prayer of Elijah, then God, the same God of Elijah, can turn that situation around. Or Elijah, the ordinary man with a nature just like ours, inspires us or should inspire us, should encourage us to pray like Elijah prayed. And this is the question, so, so how did he live like this? Because this is the most important thing to me is I want to know how Elijah lives like this. And, and, and I don't know that we find an answer in Elijah's life. We don't find an answer how it is. No, the scripture doesn't tell us how it is that Elijah hears and the voice of the Lord said to Elijah, was it Elijah, Elijah, go and dwell by the brook Cherith and there I've commanded a raven. I don't know what it sounded like. It may have been just like it is for us. A sense within that I've got to go that way and and dwell by this brook, or maybe it was clear and precise. 
But Elijah, I think, struggled to hear from God, but I think he practiced it, and he got better at it. I want to imagine, because that's how it seems to be in the rest of Scripture, that the, 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 the more we, we do spiritual disciplines, the, 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 the better and the easier the work gets, the walk gets. Because any of you here who've tried to do exercise or any, anything, and I remember, Ben, you were talking about gardening the other week, how much you, you, you hate gardening. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think gardening somehow is, is it's one of those weird, weird lessons that the world's against you. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I can plant something, and if I don't do something, it's going to go wrong. And so that tells me that if I'm not actively in my garden and actively sowing and, and, and watering and, and weeding and all those things, it's going to be a mess. And there's a proverb that says that. It says, I walked past the field of the, of the lazy man, and I looked, and it was overgrown with nettles, and its wall was broken down. And I learned something from that proverb, that a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and suddenly your need just comes on you like an arm for help. That there's something written in the world, code, that tells us that if we're not active and, and active and, and passionately stepping forward, then somehow the world is going to overwhelm us. And so there's no way that Elijah walked a life that wasn't one of active, passionate spirituality. Because, because he, 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 he's a man who is absolutely certainly could see the kingdom and the present reality of the kingdom as a more tangible reality than the world. Before he goes to Ahab, as I was saying earlier, he hears the sound of rain. It hasn't rained yet. He hears the sound of rain. Somehow he, he heard it in the, in the, in the, he heard the, the rain in the kingdom that God's saying, I'm going to do this. And he interprets that this, is, this must be what it means. And so I can now go and say that it's going to rain because rain is coming. The present reality of the kingdom, the tangible reality of the kingdom, he could see it. He could see the kingdom. This is what we're called to. We're called to see the kingdom clearly. We're called to know the principles of the kingdom. We're called to know the currency of the kingdom. It's, it's reward system. If you're unclear about the reward system of the kingdom, read the Beatitudes. Read, read Mark 5, 6, and 7, or I think it's Luke 6, which is a shorter version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and says, blessed are the, these, because this is how it works in the kingdom. He's, he's articulating for us all the, the currency of the kingdom. And at the end of the day, if we know the king of the kingdom, and we understand his principles, and how he leads, and how he, how he, how he rewards, and how he provides, and what his voice sounds like, he can lead us on a faith journey. This is exactly like Elijah's faith journey into places of need where we can pray prayers to heal the sick, into places of provision where there is otherwise no provision, into corridors and halls of power where we can speak words of power and authority that our God has given us for presidents and senators and mayors and other folks like that. It's what we're called to. This is an ordinary man on a faith journey that is just like ours. And this is my word to you this morning, that a faith journey is ordinary Christianity. And if we were all proximate and right up in one another's face, I'd ask you now to spend a moment sharing with someone a story of faith. I'd ask you to turn to someone and say to them, here's a way that God has led me in faith in my life. This is how it was hard. This is how I struggled to discern what it was that God was saying. This is how friends sometimes even said that I couldn't do it, that it wasn't possible, that I was going to a place 
where there could never be provision from God. I was going to do something that God could never meet me in. I was expecting something that God has never done before. But this is the journey of faith. And the problem I think we have is that we don't tell enough of these stories. You know, I remember growing up in, 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 in a church tradition where sometimes we'll have testimony night, and it would go on. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have experienced those when someone would come and tell a story, this is what God did for me, and then someone else would come, and then you look, and the line would be 50 people long. All people come in to testify, this is what God did, this is how God did, this is how it was down, this is how it was bad, and this is how God came through for me. But instead of, you know, instead of saturating ourselves with kingdom stories, we live in a world that saturates us with its stories. And so our radios, when we turn the radio on, when we turn the television on, when we read the news, when we look on social media, we're being saturated with, with stories of a different kingdom, stories of a, a worldly empire. And so no wonder it's hard to walk out a life of faith. Elijah models solitude. He models isolation. He models getting away. Jesus meets him in a place on the top of a mountain, away from everything else, and that's where they, they, they commune so clearly that Jesus is transfigured. It's telling me that, that, that if, if I saturate myself with, with kingdom stories, and this is why we come together. This is why we have fellowship. Church isn't about sitting in your pajamas at home, on your bed, watching someone else do church. Church is about participating. It's about you've got something to tell me. It's about I've got something to tell you. You've got something to share with someone else. Someone there's got something to share with someone else. Someone there needs prayer. Someone there can pray for that person who needs prayer. Someone there is suffering. Someone there is struggling to overcome something that someone else has overcome. And unless we, unless we live that way, we'll never be people like Elijah, but the scripture is telling us that we can be and we are called to be. Psalm 1 um, puts it the, the simplest way um, for me. Um, blessed is the man, and this is interesting, blessed, and I think also if you're blessed, you're also a blessing. So the person who does this is both blessed and is a blessing, is the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That means we're not saturated with non-kingdom things. Because if we do that, it says the next step is we begin to stand in their path and act like them and sit in the seat, their seat, which is we, we take on their behavior. But instead, verse 2 of chapter 1 of um, Psalm 1, um, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates for a minute a morning, no, on the way to work, and then never again for the rest of the day. No, once every seven weeks when they feel like it? No, because we don't exercise like that if we mean to get anywhere. Anyone who goes to the gym once every eight weeks is going to hurt every time they go, and it's going to be hard to get there, right? I go away for a week on vacation. If I don't exercise, I come back. I don't want to <laughs> gym. Anna, Anna embarrasses me. She's straight out there. She's unpacked the suitcase. All of that sort of thing, and I'm languishing and coming up with reasons why Jim is just anti, anti me and all that sort of thing. But but I know in my Noah that the discipline of going means that it's going to get better, and somehow 
there's going to be an increase in strength and the reps are going to be easier, all those sort of things. And, and the gardening analogy is the same thing. And anything else you're trying to do, you want to write songs, you've got to write songs so that you get better at writing songs. You don't sit there and just write the world's greatest song once in your life and never do it again. Well, maybe you do if you get lucky. But, but those disciplines. And so what I'm encouraging you to hear is from someone is disciplines, spiritual disciplines. And the, and the promise of God is this, you should be like a tree planted by rivers of water, bringing forth fruit in season. Your leaf never withers, and in everything you do, you prosper. This is the calling of those, I believe, who walk after God in a disciplined way. And whether that discipline means that you just, you pray a little bit, as much as you can today, or you set time aside to pray each day and to read the scriptures, and you practice the disciplines of giving, and service, and you practice the discipline of having fellowship with one another. Wouldn't it be amazing, though, is that you find that over time, the kingdom reality becomes more and more tangible because you've heard a, another story of faith, and you've heard about how someone got through a circumstance that was worse than yours, and you're like, I can do this too, rather than saturating ourselves with the, the world that is just like the garden set up to push us back and to grow weeds for us. And I wonder, this is, this is what I think the scripture is saying in, in I think it's Romans 12, where it says, you, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed uh, by the renewing of your mind. And it then says that once our minds are renewed, then we can go on to know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As our minds are transformed, it's how we begin to be able to see better and clearer in the kingdom and, and, to, and to be able to take those steps that people like Elijah and Moses and David and Noah and Abraham and Peter and Paul and all those other people took because their, their most present reality was the kingdom of heaven. And I wonder sometimes whether walking with the Lord is a little like being a, I've, I've never read an article on how babies see, and I'm sure a doctor will correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that I don't know, do they see in color when they're born? Let's assume that they do. Do they know what they're looking at? When they, they don't even do that for a few weeks, do they? They're just looking at something. And they can perceive that something's there. And then maybe eventually, they, the next thing is they're just going to reach out and try and grab it, and they don't get it. But then one day, they do grab the, the remote and break it, <laughs> or, or whatever they grab. And they get hold of it because they, they've got something, but they don't know what they've got. And they don't know what the purpose of the thing they've got is, but as understanding comes, then they get that this is a bottle of water, and maybe someone tells them what it's called, and they can say, water, water. They don't know yet what they're meant to do with it. And then one day, someone gives them the sense that if you do this, and you do this, and you, you do that. And I wonder whether the journey of faith and seeing with spiritualized is just the same. That in the beginning, just shapes of things. I don't know what I'm looking at. I have a sense of something. I think spiritually it's like the shape is maybe just a sense of something. And then maybe the, sh the thing that we sense comes into, into focus. But I'm talking about people who are practicing spiritual disciplines, not people who are doing nothing. People who are working hard to, 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 to press into the kingdom, to, to take the kingdom in a, in a way, in a serious way that's more serious than anything around them. And that once we then we see the shape and we can, we can, we can apprehend it and then we, we have wisdom as to what we do with it and then we can walk just, I pray, I believe, I'm certain, like Elijah.
How many of you have been led to places that you thought you couldn't thrive in? How many of you have done things that the world said not to do in the name of the king and seen fruit? Hmm? How many of you have prayed prayers that God has answered? And sometimes, I know this for, I know this to be weird, sometimes it's not the prayer that I got on my knees and, and screamed at God, it was the prayer that I'm not even sure I said. The, the, the thought, it was half a thought that God leapt into my thought and pulled the thought out and did I think it? I think I did. I thought of it was a spirit, spirit prayer in its answer and I'm shocked because I, I wasn't expecting it. This is ordinary Christianity. And it's ordinary Christianity from a people who are living inside of a kingdom that is so much better than this world's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is a place where thief and moths can't cause rotting and discoloration and tarnishing. Yet we fight tooth and nail to hang on to the tangible things of the worldly kingdom. How much better to give everything for the king and his kingdom that is eternal, that is priceless, that never fades away. A kingdom that, that unlike ours, you know, this has been a, a horrible year so far, um, right? But a kingdom that doesn't experience this kind of stuff. Yeah, the shaking, the pressure. A kingdom that, is, that its substance and its perfection is, 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 is unlike anything that we're walking in the midst of. And I think sometimes when we walk through situations like this, if our hearts aren't like, God, I long for your kingdom more. I long for the brilliance and the perfection and the, and the beauty of your kingdom more than this world that's fading away. More than the place where people die suddenly in car accidents. More than a, a kingdom when people get sick and, 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 and suffer horribly. It's the kingdom that we're called to inhabit, the kingdom we're called to live inside of. And, and the verse I want to close with today is this. It's Hebrews 12, 28. Hebrews 12, verse 28, that says this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, think about that. This is what the kingdom of heaven, it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may say, serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And so this is my wrap up here. It's, it's that Elijah is a man who gets this. He gets the kingdom of heaven. He gets that this is a kingdom which cannot be shaken, which cannot be overcome which is eternal, which is exceptional, which is perfect, which endures forever. And he gives everything in view of, because of, unto the king of that kingdom. But in order that we might do this, the scripture's telling us that we have need of grace. That we might serve God acceptably. So we pray for grace for one another for ourselves. We recognize that it's uphill and that the world is against us and we pray for 
grace. And we recognize that when we struggle, that we pray for grace. We recognize that when others are sick and suffering or taken in some habitual sin, that for them we pray for grace. And we give grace and we minister grace and we pray one for another and we have fellowship. Oh, we were like the early church. I mean, we're so busy in our lives, but if we met every day and shared stories of faith and prayed for one another and searched the scriptures and sung hymns of praise when there was praise to be sung and mourned and grieved with one another when there was mourning and grieving to do, but encouraged one another day after day, daily, night and day. And when we weren't together, we were meditating in the, from the beginning of the day somehow to the end of the day, last thing at night, first thing in the morning on the law of the Lord. And we were, we were uttering the prayers that we had grace for. And when we haven't got grace to pray, we say, God, give me grace to pray because I don't want to pray this morning. I, I find it easier to get up and flip my phone on. God knows that. And we'll answer that prayer as well. But bit by bit, little by little, I'm convinced of this, that every one of us here, every one of us here, can walk like Elijah walked. Amidst a generation as corrupt, or more corrupt perhaps, than the days of Ahab, who was doing evil in the Lord's sight that was so terrible. So just as God raised up Elijah in that context, God has caused you to live in this day. to pray for yourselves, one for another, for grace, that we may serve God acceptably because we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Amen. The beginning for us really of, of all of this is, is Jesus, is the end of it all. We are able to, to walk in his kingdom to see the things of his kingdom, to pray for grace because he's the one who made a way. Scripture says that we can boldly come before the throne of our Father for mercy and grace in our time of need. Not timidly, but boldly, with confidence because the way has been made by Jesus. And so it's Jesus that we come to celebrate and remember this morning as we take communion. And before we take it, let me read to you these words taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so as we wrestle with the elements to get them open, <laughs> one day we won't do that anymore. We'll dip bread in juice. Praise God for that day coming soon. But today, as we take the bread and drink the juice, let us do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming his death till he comes. And after you've taken, I ask you to do this. Pray for someone else. Someone who God brings to your mind, whose need you know. They may be sick. They may 
be suffering from the symptoms of COVID-19 at the moment or something else. You may know people who are struggling in their marriages, who are struggling individually to overcome things that maybe have just plagued them for years. Pray for them. I long for the day when we're here and we can turn like we used to, one to another and pray in the seats right where we were. So maybe if that person is next to you, pray with them. But other than that, God, bring to our minds those who you would hear prayers offered for. And we pray in your name on their behalf as well.